Welcome to the first Crash Chords podcast of 2016. Team, Woo! team, 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 team. That's my, that's my echo. Th- thanks yeah, for the echo, Yeah, your echo's Steve. better than my echo. Do we sound any different to our no. listeners? Why, why we do. Well, I mean, it depends on how much <laughs> you're you are. You're not a listener. I mean. Well, I hope you do sometimes. Well, I, I listen to the episodes after the fact. That's good. I'm I fairly do. self-absorbed. I do every week. I have to edit them. Right. Well, um, so if we sound a little different, it's because we're starting the new year with a new mic. Um, Andy of the Waystation, that's Andy Heidel, gifted us a brand new condenser mic. So thank you, Andy. Um, and this is our first time using it. Um, as well as Steve has a swanky new laptop. It's yes. my old Mac that I gave to him that was given to me. Your old swanky new laptop, it's, which is now your my old new swanky new laptop. It's still newer than your laptop. <laughs> I think I repeated yeah. something in there. Um, so it's nice to uh, have this new sound. Hopefully you think we sound good. If you notice a difference or have any comments or questions on the new sound, please feel free to post on the site. I am sick, so if I sound weird and nasally, that's that's That's, that's just Don't, don't, don't shock that yeah. up to the mic. Yes. yes. That's his that's thing. That's Let just, him work it that's out. That's just for me. This um, fault. Really quick, before we get into this week's album, our first album of the new year, I want to talk a little bit about a, uh, an awesome concert experience I had this past weekend. On Saturday, Sarah bought tickets for us to go see They Might Be Giants, who I've never seen in concert before. And it was amazing. Um, they played at the Music Hall of Williamsburg, and uh, it was really cool. They played some old stuff, some new stuff. But what's interesting about when they play in Brooklyn is they do a series of shows in a row, and each night has a theme. Like the day before, friends of mine went on Friday, and it was they played all of the album Flood live. Um, the night we went was the Horn Extravaganza. And so you got the best night. You had some fun posting the updates uh, on that concert in the Crash Chords chat window, and I could kind of feel John's teeth gritting as he didn't say anything. Yeah, I didn't say anything no. either because... Uh, I, it was I, I believe I specifically <laughs> I, I specifically said mean things to you and told you you should have just told me after the concert was over because I really did not want to know that you were doing this beforehand. Well, I'm I guess a terrible person. But the <laughs> a awesome bit thing of about one, yeah, okay, you got to see them on Horn Night. I did. The the <laughs> in, most interesting thing about Horn Night was they played a song that I thought I would probably never ever get to hear live, and that is of course one of our favorite tracks as a group from They Might Be Giants. Darlings of Lumberland. Which That's is, the point where I almost threw my phone. Yeah. yeah. Which is off of Nanobots. Which we reviewed, reviewed that back in episode 38. And uh, though the arrangements sound different live, which I expected as much, it was still really awesome. It was really cool to hear this song that I didn't ever think I'd get to hear live because of how intricate it was in, a, at, in concert. Of course, they closed the show with Istanbul. They did play Particle Man at some point during the night as well. I got to hear some of the new stuff, like Let Me Tell You About My Operation, which is off their newest record, Glean, which was really awesome to hear a big band song like that live with the horns also. With a big band? Yeah. Go figure. Um, and they also played, I'm trying, oh, um, You Look Just Like My Mom, I think is the name of the track. It's the song from Nanobots where the protagonist sings about how whoever they're on a date with reminds them of their mother. 
which is also fun. It was cool to hear some of the newer stuff, a bunch of the older stuff. Um, it was an incredible concert. If you ever have the opportunity to go see them live, I'm, I feel like I can safely say no matter what kind of music you listen to, you would enjoy They Might Be Giants. You could probably go to a different They Might Be Giants concert every year and hear different music. That's also true. I mean, their do repertoire remember, is humongous. Do they remember all of it, like off the cuff yeah, in, in they, a concert setting? Um, Darlings of Lumberland, he actually did read the lyrics off of a piece of paper. Because okay. I imagine they haven't performed it that much. Oh, and they also did Their a hard very, drives are limited, I understand. <laughs> they did a very special cover. Apparently, The Onion had a contest where they got bands to cover strange songs, especially for the genre for the band. And so the song The Onion sent They Might Be Giants was Bills, Bills, Bills by Destiny's Child, which they performed live on Saturday. Is that with a Z? Uh, no, I believe it's Bills, Bills, Bills. Not Bills, Bills, That's Bills. how you said it. <laughs> I know. Um, but yeah, so that was a lot of fun. Definitely go check them out. Um, but Steve, why don't you now tell us a little bit about our album for this week? Yes, this is the first album analysis of 2016. Uh, now, barring all of the things we plan on on the podcast, one thing we didn't plan, but that John actually pointed out, is that just as we cycle from week to week picking albums between the three of us, Matt, John, Steve, Matt, John, Steve, barring guests and listener picks and special episodes of the like, we've inadvertently done that on an annual basis as well. I began 2013, Matt began 2014, John began 2015, and now it's back to me. Well, with the exception of our disorganized years, uh, when I began 2013 with Mogwai's A Wrench to Viral Lore, uh, which was a lot of crap since I was unaware that it was a remix album at the time, with the exception of that, I thought your last two picks were very interesting. Matt with Paul McCartney's New, which was a nice homage to one of the great rock stars of all time, if a little bit of a downer for us, and John with Aphex Twins' Zero, a post-13-year hiatus and revisitation of one of the giants of electronica. Both great ways to start off the year, I thought, um, encouraging me to get on my game when my round came again. So, for entirely different reasons as yours, I chose Bjork's Vilnikira to start off 2016. Uh, Bjork, that is Bjork Gudmundsdottir, love that full name, uh, Icelandic art pop curiosity, however you really want to see her, whatever box you want to put her in. Uh, and I chose her more for the controversy than for anything. Critics' controversy, that is. Specifically because she's an artist who has either been lauded or panned depending upon the changing of the tides or of the winds. I don't know, it's inplaceable. Matt actually put it best last week when he announced that Bjork's uh, just an artist who, when it comes to the, the changing of the tracks, it's track by track for you. It's very much just like it depends um, on the circumstance. You can't say sweeping statements about some Bjork albums. And I'm on a similar page, and I feel that's because she doesn't compromise for anyone. She's what I'd call the artist's artist. Every idea of hers just erupts from this inner art factory, from her imagination straight to the demo cut. Bang! It's immediate. Don't question art. <laughs> like she's just painting this giant canvas with her body just pressed against the surface, smearing paint all around intuitively, and then you just take a few steps back, and everyone just goes, huh. And some people are going to love it, some people are going to hate it, but you can't argue that there was a purity of will there at the least. Um, yeah, I, I think that I should take a moment to be honest about Bjork. We, we talk about, and we have talked about as a topic, not having prejudices for artists, you know, going into every album we review with an open mind. But I have to be honest with Bjork, I've always heard songs here or there, and I've kind of always viewed her as maybe how some of the panned critics viewed her. This kind of weird, highfalutin, you know, avant-garde, bizarro that was pained to my ears. <laughs> um, and, that's, and I'm not saying that I think she's bad. I'm saying I had a prejudice that she was or that the music wasn't any good. But truth be told, you know, that's not fair. And I wanted to go into this album with 
open ears, and so I'm ignoring that initial prejudice. That Which is had. why I said critics' controversy, because I almost feel that in many ways some of the reasons you felt that or I felt that was because we were told to feel that way by society that had made fun of her in one sketch comedy after another. Not really accurate. I was actually in a similar boat. Weird, avant-garde, bizarro world music, but I never really dived into Bjork's work. So I can't say if I liked it or I hated it or I just thought it was okay. I didn't know where it was. It was something that I never truly been exposed to on a uh, macro basis. Like I know I've heard Bjork's songs, but I never really like associated them with her. I, they were just background music at the time or something of that sort. Well, let's look at the artist's profile, if you will. Um, a, a quick point of genealogical nerdiness on my part. Bjork is Icelandic, I'll stress this again, because appearance can be important in music, and I think as far as continental audiences are concerned, her ethnicity has really given her an aura, like a, a, a mythos, like she's rising from the geysers or of the volcanoes of the island like some elven siren girl thing. Genetically, she's definitely a little bit Irish, and of course most Icelanders are dominantly Scandinavian, but ironically with darker features than you'd expect from Scandinavians, taken from the super north Scandinavians, called the Sami, which immigrated from further east in Russia. Plus, she was actually thought to be uh, a little bit Asian for a while. People wondered that. Uh, but it's more likely that she actually had an Inuit background, which I find more fascinating from a genealogical perspective, namely because if she is Asian, it's creeping in from both the East and the West at the same time over a 10,000-year span. This pan-Arctic genetic makeup. It's fascinating to me. She's also adorable. Anyway... <laughs> Her parents were activist types, and although they divorced when she was very young, uh, she grew up with her mother on a commune, and she got into music pretty early on, studied classical piano and flute, and now, of course, she plays piano, flute, harp, clarinet, harmonica, and she sings. And it's in her singing that she is most known. Uh, her signature warbles and shrieks and accents, the phrasing, which comes across as odd to a lot of critics, as we said. I wasn't really sure how I felt about it for the longest time, but there is a consistency there that I think makes it very artistic. Uh, now, as far as the bands that she's been in, she's also pretty prolific. She's gone from an all-girl punk, punk band, Spit and Snot, to a jazz fusion group called Exodus, uh, another group called Jam 80, to another group called Tappy Tikaras, which means something to the effect of cork the bitch's ass in Icelandic, and uh, another group called uh, Rocka Rocka Drum, and <laughs> I could go on, seriously, the list is endless, goth rock called, band called Kukul, meaning sorcery, so much more. Ultimately, she did become the front woman for the Sugar Cubes, which is what launched her fame, uh, from what I understand, and from there, her solo career. Which brings us Volnikura, a January 2015 album, so it's exactly a year ago now, uh, quite directly about her breakup with Matthew Barney, who she was married to for about 13 years, from 2013. Uh, they have two children together, I believe. Um, yeah, it must have been pretty harsh for her, and you can kind of tell that within the first few bars of this album. It's not going to be all, all joy and sunshine. So, let's go to the first track of Volnikura, because this is electronica, classical, art pop, all in once, and, and I'm, I'm excited to give Bjork a fair shake here. It's changed my perception of her in many ways. Track one, Stone Milker. So Stone Milker, um, the intro track is about six and a half minutes long. Um, get used to the long song times if you're in the long haul with us, because I think the shortest track is an even three minutes, and most of them don't go any get anywhere near that short. 
Um, anyway, this song opens with beautiful strings to start that are very quickly joined by Bjork's signature vocals. But something that caught me off guard initially when she very first starts singing is it's got this heavenly tone I wasn't expecting. Again, in my brain, I have this cliched look of her, uh, sound of her like when she was on Saturday Night Live or, you know, the live performances she's done that were very, you know, avant-garde and weird. And here we're getting something fairly melodic. There's still a little bit of her general, you know, her well-known warble in there. But it's very sweet. It's very beautiful. And accompanied by these sweeping strings really makes it really pretty for a start. I should probably also bring that in since I was going into her background. Uh, she's She's... 50. She's pushing 50 right now. I think she's 50 years old this year. Um, it's it's weird, even weird for me to think of Bjork that way because I, I think of her just as being so so young. I feel like she she looked like she was 19 for so many years. Uh, it's hard to feel like she's been in the business for so long. And yeah, as a result, by the time I got this album, you forget that she's had a lot of experience under her belt. Of course, she's still just as, I guess, just as impulsive as she always was, but I distinctly picked up a lot of musical evolution just from the flow of this track and the flow of uh, the way she divvies up sections. I don't know how uh, it was divvied up between like what she did and what her the people under her name did, because there's a quite a long list of collaborators in this album. Uh, I won't mention all of them. A lot of them have Icelandic names, so I'm avoiding them so I don't have to pronounce them. That's, that's the ticket. But the one thing that stayed true just from my at-a-glance look at her is her vocals. She still sounds exactly like she really always seemed to sound to me. It's, it's... Her voice has remained very pure and very childlike. That was the one thing that always struck me from what I heard of her. A very much a wonderment kind of a voice. You, you almost feel like she doesn't quite know what she's saying at times. And it's that, that promotes a very endearing quality for her. And a very true quality in, in her vocal work and her lyrical work. So when she says something like, just the first line, a juxtapositioning fate. Her pronunciation and just the range on her voice is, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's like she's saying the word for the first time. Well, the funny thing is the range is actually, I feel, very narrowed. Uh, the range is, is just somewhat, you know, mid-alto, somewhere in there. Uh, she doesn't do a lot of, like, the, the shrieks that I described early on here. It's 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 It just kind of sits in a, somewhat of a safe land, but I do agree with you that in terms of the pronunciation, it's a bit odd. That, that That's addressing the obvious here. The, the quality of her voice, um, it owes itself partially to the accent, of course, although I believe she's been speaking English for quite a long time, so it's not really a barrier to me. Um, but it comes across maybe as a little bit of a barrier because it's the kind of thing that someone who didn't speak English, uh, who might not grasp the nuances of English cadence, might do. But I believe that it's it's thoroughly an artistic choice and has been for a very long time. She's forged the style, like you said, a long, long time ago. And I believe it's to capture a kind of moment-by-moment -moment breakdown, especially considering these lyrics, considering it, it concerns a breakup. Uh, she's coming from a broken place, and maybe this is always kind of what she sung about a little bit. I don't, I don't know in every instance, but it has always been her style. What I like about this track is as it moves, when we go from that beautiful string and vocal intro, about... I think about a minute in, it, we get this percussion finally enters in with, and it's kind of like a thumping bass percussion, probably electronic, though it could be an actual physical drum. Um, and that adds a kind of almost hollowness, like a cave-like feel to the song, you know, maybe not feeling completely like in a cave, but maybe internalized almost, that maybe where that hollowness is coming from, it's hard to really pinpoint. It's a wet atmosphere, that's kind of what yeah. I feel like. A, if it's a cave, it's going to be a damp cave. Yeah. I actually, the, the internalized argument is something I definitely want to explore here because it does have a very 
echo in your mind kind of a quality. It's muffled, it's underground, but when you pair it with the strings, the, the strings themselves aren't echoing, but it feels like they should be. It feels like in, in a lot of ways, they, they echo her voice. They, they sort of play around in that respect. You're getting a different kind of context with the percussion, but instead of it just complimenting, now it seems like the, the strings are really just paralleling and, and reinforcing the message she's getting across. Well, well, let's not make the, the sweeping statement about the strings, because after all, there are like three different components oh, yes. here, starting off with, sure. with the upright bass, which in the very beginning of the track kind of takes us through this, this passacaglia sort of the repeating bass line, and then after that the violins enter. So far, very, very mournful. Um, and then it's, it's the main element that I feel is almost so secondary to her, her voice, or I say so secondary because actually I think it's almost primary. Uh, there's sort of a call and response here between her voice and the cello. The cello takes this, um, plays in sort of in the mid to high range. It might even be a viola, but I'm pretty sure it's a cello. It, it comps against her vocals, against her melody, with a lot of personality. And I feel that at times it feels almost more sorrowful than she does. Because after all, it's true, you can get lost in the lyrics a little bit. Sometimes you have to be reading along if you don't pick up every single word, every single syllable, because they're broken up in such a way that, you know, again, you have to take a few steps back to really think, what did she just say? But the, the cello says it all here, and it's incredibly mournful, uh, all the way up until we finally do get the beatbox that you mentioned, or the, the synth in the background, which it does add a bit of an inner reflection, that I don't know if the strings really could have supported all on their own. It makes it something unique. Like, up until then, if you just were taking the strings alone, combined with their voice, you essentially have a string quartet with a vocal accompaniment. Um, well, that's been done before, and I could still say things like, yeah, very, very mournful, wonderful. But it is that echo, it is the synth that I think kind of binds this into some some unique entity where I can pin it to Bjork. Well, also I want to say that just on this first track alone, and spoiler for the rest of the album, mostly, this is not what I expected to hear again. Yeah. I expected it to be a lot more peculiar and and artistic. Not that this isn't artistic, but it definitely, I didn't, I expected something a little on the side of strange. This is something I can wrap my mind around. We expected avant-garde, and this is, no. the, for whatever this is, it's not avant-garde. Yes, yes it is. I will actually ah. fight that statement. You haven't and heard true avant-garde then. <laughs> I, yeah, yes I have, but it's... And even then, avant-garde what? Even when you say avant-garde, it's meaningless until you attach it to a genre. Either that, or it's it's no genre at all. It's just, well, it's just pure the, impulse. But the structure here. The approach of this is still very freeform. The the melody is very light. The harmonies are where the focus is. The rhythm itself, the percussion itself of this track is also basically just that simple little beatbox. When they go into the chorus, when the chorus actually shows up, you get a solid exploration of all the ideas that came beforehand. But the flow is so liquid, it becomes almost one solid note throughout in this in this track as a whole. It, it flows. It doesn't have an, any sharp edges to it itself. Um, There's no real diverting one section to the next here. Okay, not sharp, although I do believe that some of the pops that you get out of that synth and the, the, the beatbox in the background are, are somewhat... They're meant to... They at least are a driving force with this. And then, if I am harping on that word sharp, I do think that the cello is the instrument, and this was my point before, that cuts through above all the rest. And it's something that I find engaging, which is why I can't just dismiss this as some, like, fluid background ambient thing. There are some ambient elements. I didn't elements. say background there are or ambient. ambient. All right, I did true, it. true. I'm just saying there are those moments on this album, but this, despite being flowing, I still think has a tendency to reach out. The cello, especially, just the fact that it has this own tearful melody of its own, 
that that exists in between her own melodies. I I, I almost hesitate to call it true comping. It's an it's a, it's an entity. And that's where I want to sum this up as more of an exploration of her own vocal texture. At the end of the day, everything revolves around what she's singing and how she's singing. Everything is there to complement her and to explore what her voice is doing. Even though her voice isn't changing in range itself, the music is shaping the feeling she's trying to uh, to create into something different. And that's why it just seems to flow from one to the next. It starts bright, but it, it does end up getting a little bit more dour and a little bit, like, even foreboding at moments. Actually, the funny thing is that the chorus here, I'm going to segue into the chorus by actually disagreeing once again, because when it comes to the chorus, I feel it is a moment of, of uh, almost ecstasy, which is strange because the lyrics don't really match up with that at all. It, it, it's a kind of desperation. Um, ecstasy, maybe because the desperate quality, the things that she seeks, it would probably be ecstasy. The lines go, show me emotional respect. I have emotional needs. I wish to synchronize our feelings. And just, just those lines. I mean, that, those words cut deep for anyone who has never been on the same page or ha- who hasn't at times been on the same page with the other in their relationship. I mean, that's, uh, we want to synchronize our feelings. It's, it's just by virtue of the fact that we're all different people, it's almost an impossible thing to do is to synchronize our feelings. You have to, you have to put some of your own desires on the side. And when you're talking about a 13-year marriage, just to speak to the issue at hand, I feel like this, uh, I, I see where she's coming from here. And it's, it's, it's a little rough in, in, in the going of it. But this in itself is a, a big musical peak for, for the track. It's not just this, this flowing uh, river right into this. Instead, it was slowly creeping, building intensity throughout the pre-chorus, and then finally here in, in, in the chorus, it's just, it, it's, it's almost joyful, like I said, because I believe it's, it's what she wants, and she's paying that some homage. And I would say her vocals don't change much in that entire section. In the chorus? Oh, no, they're... They don't change much. They're beautiful. Yes, no, they're still beautiful, but her pitch is not changing. She's not really going up and down her scale right here. <laughs> She's remaining the same. It's the no, accompaniment. No, her pitch is changing. I, it's the accompaniment I feel like more than anything else of, of what's going on right there that really does more to get that message across for me. I believe they're both pulling their weight. I'm going to have to disagree with you on that one. I, I felt the, the track lift up. But now where I will agree with you on this track is that I feel like it does not... Following that chorus, I feel like I kind of got lost in the decay of it or in the return to the verse because I didn't once again pick up on the flow of this track or the overall arc of it until we got to the second chorus. And I was like, well, there's that moment again that I love. But hadn't we been in the chorus? I almost thought that she had just like dragged it out. But she did definitely return to a verse. It was just indiscernible to me, which I guess did make the verses a little bit weaker in context. But that's just about, you know. That's just the flow of a track. You reach your your peaks, and that's once you reach them, then it does kind of diminish the rest by contrast. It's still a journey that I feel she she needed to have. I mean, the whole track is I, I when it comes to fruition and completes at that six and a half minutes or so, you kind of get the sense of a sine wave almost. I, I can't agree that yeah, it's exactly. like one solid block. I feel like it's more that it has ups and downs. It flows, but it comes back on itself at, at the at the end of the track. While I wasn't tired of it and I enjoyed the track as a whole, you could tell that it was coming back on itself and it was more or less doing this sine wave where it would go down and then come back up and then go back down, but they stayed kind of within the same range. 
But it does reach a particularly low point. Um, well, I guess still maybe you're right about where you were in the beginning because of the fact that the, the, the techno portion, the, the synth element is reduced. It reaches this uh, this kind of pure string section. It almost, again, feels just like a pure string quartet for a while. No synth, no beatbox, no nothing. And it feels especially mournful right here. Really slow going, dragging out each and every note. It's around like 5 minutes, 15 seconds or something like that. And it's it's this 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 rock hard, like, ugly place I feel like she's sitting in and the track is sitting in that sends the message home. Well, what I think is that end, that instrumental that was most, mostly just strings, the song started with strings also, but in a higher place. So it's kind of the extreme opposite ends of where the same track could go. Gotcha. Um, all right. Well, let's go on to uh, track two, Lion's Song. This one is, is only different. six minutes long instead of six and a half <laughs> yes, minutes. Yes, we get it. We have longish songs compared so, to our usual fare. So this starts with um, only vocals, and it's got an echoed doubling, which sounds like has a vocalizer on it too or some kind of effect. It's two singers here. But but the I way believe it was two singers. It could have been Bjork and, and Bjork, but you know. But the way it's doubled, it just it gives this interesting, almost warped sound at points. The whole thing doesn't sound warped, but at moments, at particular notes, it does sound like it warps a little. Well, that's because this doubling effect phases in and out over the course of the the first verse. I'm not particularly fond of this. Oh, I liked it. <laughs> uh, that was interesting. Well, it what. What bothered me was it made her unique pronunciation more difficult to understand. I, I like the inflection she throws on her words. I like the very interesting stance she has on the vocabulary that she's using. Well, but here it's a little bit, just a little bit too hard for me to follow. It's, it's just a little bit more effort that I want to really put into to understanding what's going on. Well, if you're just talking about the intro here, I think that's a little bit harsh, considering it's purely a... a, a it's a, it's a sound art thing that she's doing. I don't think it's really quite time for theme and lyrics yet. Of course, she's saying things. He sa she says, maybe he will come out of this. Maybe he won't. Somehow, I'm not too bothered either way. But all of this, just amidst the, the whole vocalizer slash almost auto-tune thing. It's not really auto-tune. But if, if there's anything there, it's so subtle. Um, because the core is just the, the pitch shift between them. The, again, the phasing up and down, like you said. It's almost like... If there is an extra effect, it's just smoothing out the transition. And it does make it sound almost a little bit electronic. Uh, very unique, though. It almost comes across as jazzy for, for that duration. And then we get uh, the verse. And this is... Um, actually, then, then we go right into the chorus, come to think of it. Maybe he will come out of this loving me. Maybe he will come out of this I smell declarations of solitude. Maybe he will come out of this. Um, <laughs> obviously, we know who he is. So it's like... I don't know. I, I didn't know how to how to take this immediately following the other track. I just knew I was interested on a musical level. I really wasn't thinking about um, about theme yet. I do want to say the instrumentation here because we have, you know, we we get more synth per percussion, we get more strings, we get more of some similar sounds that we were getting in the previous track. But how I liken it too is like a painter with a palette. You know, picking certain colors, but making using the same colors, but making a different picture each time. Painting another beautiful picture each time, and and that seems to become a running theme through a good chunk of the album. Is that you know she's not using different instruments, but it's how she's using them that's interesting. Well, yeah. what's making a resurgence in this track is that that uh, beatbox percussion. That's kind of mm -hmm. like scat percussion. It's it shows back up, and it's more of just. 
there for the progression idea, for the movement idea of what's going on here when she starts getting to, into individual aspects of the story she's telling. It's working very well to add a sort of time frame to this track, a sort of idea that there is movement in time, not just the actual length of the song, but something that's taking days, months, weeks, years, mm. kind of an idea that things are going on because the story is about a man who just can't deal with something, can't deal with it. Later on, Vietnam vet comes after the war, lands in my house. This wild lion doesn't fit in this chair. There's something going on here. One person is having trouble adapting. I, I feel it's more her, uh, the idea that she is the wild one, then maybe that's the problem, or if that's the problem between them. I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's tough to do this and, and get close to real events. You almost feel like, like it's a little too intrusive. But this album was, after all, called a very uh, bearing herself to the world kind of album, even more so than she usually does. Maybe because she has a tendency to speak somewhat in riddles, or even if they're not riddles, even if it is on the nose, it's at least obscured by, again, that vocal style. And you're not always picking up lyrics. But I will say one thing, and this is why I didn't know how to take this track initially following the previous, but I was still interested, is that it, during these choruses, it the violin steps in with an extremely exotic, like high-pitched air to it. It almost sounds like, like Middle Eastern. I just I love the flow of this. I, I felt it was it was existing somewhere else. Um, but it still uses the same tools as Matt said earlier. It still uses the same the same palette uh, the same palette of instruments. So it it fit no doubt. Actually, the back and forth between uh, the percussion-based pieces and the violin-based pieces was kind of stark, kind of kind of very easy to see. It didn't flow the same way I felt Stone Milker did. This one felt like there were big breaks, not harsh, but big sectional changes in the musical stylings from one to the next. The harshest, I think, I found was, was sometime later when she says, these abstract, complex feelings. In fact, you can't even really quite understand that without going back another stanza once it was once it was simple one feeling at a time it reached its peak and then transformed and these then, abstract complex feelings and at that moment exactly it really does transform into something a little more i, I don't know how complicated. to describe it well, more complicated more <laughs> remixed i don't know it, it was almost an awkward shift to me but i was still ready to accept it What's interesting about this track, though, is whereas we said the previous track was a sine wave, like John is saying here, it does feel a little more disjointed, but not in a bad way. It feels like it's trying something a little different and it jumps from point to point. But what I found interesting about both tracks is they more or less end the same way. They both have the stripped down instrumentation. We're just left with the strings. It drags right. on a little long, but not too long, and then wraps up. And I thought that was very interesting to do more or less the same outro. It was it was very interesting and I also thought this is where the music took off once again. It's where it reached its climax. It's where it reached its climax this time toward the end uh where yeah, it just strips down and it felt almost like a romantic impressionist uh late Russian romantic. It felt like it was drawing from all these classical influences and yet at the same time it also just felt like its own little indie movie. <laughs> like I don't know, it's it, it was so unique, and it, it, the changes she made threw me into another time and another world, and that's, that's I think, what drew me into this. It, it did take some time to coax me, though. Well, it did, it did great coaxing along the way. When, when she's, the, after the abstract complex feelings, she does start going into make the joy peak, humor peak, frustration peak, anything peak for clarity, and there's a breakdown in the music at for clarity. 
sort of a bell ringing moment. No bell, of course, but a bell ringing kind of a moment, breaking it. And she goes back down to the more solo violin style. And then everything starts to get muddier. It starts to really get dirtier. It's a little bit more discorded in its presentation. When the strings in that finale start really coming in, it, they their, their purity really does a great job of contrasting what just came before it. Purity, clarity. It's interesting that you honed in the word clarity because it's something that I, I noticed in the first track where she says moments of clarity are so rare. And the funny thing is that of all lines in the first track, that line was actually incredibly vivid. Yeah. Like, of all the lines that I had a hard time understanding, then when she says, moments of clarity are so rare... It was as if that was a moment of that, clarity. That was a moment of clarity. And yeah. here again, moments of clarity. And then you just mentioned that in the second track, there's, there's moments of, of discord following the clarity. It's always pitting against uh, what is what is crystal clear and then something that is just off the wall stepping in. What, certainly, going back to your previous argument about this being avant-garde, there are avant-garde elements to this. I'll admit that. Yes, the direct paralleling of the music to help uh, create the story is something that she goes into time and time again. In fact, in the next track, History of Touches, she does it in a different way now. So this track is half the length of the previous track, which is... Um, three I minutes. Think, three I, minutes. But I think that's relevant, especially for the way this track was constructed and where it puts you. Well, let's talk about the intro first. So this is the first track to start with synth and not with strings, which I... Of course, when we get something different, I thought really interesting, and uh, also interesting that, that there was the, um, the 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 twin to this album, Vonicurus Strings, which mm -hmm. actually uh, involved only a string reduction of this strings and, and and maybe vocals. I'm not sure if there there was any uh, uh, techno, any any synth element at all. But the funny thing is that because this, of course, doesn't have any strings and it is just just synth, this track was the only track that was omitted from that album. Because there are no actual strings in this track. Yeah. Which adds to the overall feel of it, which we'll get into in a minute as we progress through the track. But after the synth intro, we don't have to wait too long to get some, some lyrics. Now, the synth also has a couple different characters coming out here. The, the It starts bright and keyboard style in, in a lot of ways. Uh, not as harsh and as clipped as what you expect with a keyboard, but still in that sort of tonal shifting between them. When her vocals come in, there's a more bass-oriented sound that's really doing a lot to parallel her directly, to really just work completely in line with her vocals. But even more interesting than this to me, and because this track <clears throat> is, is one that I, I was liking this all the way up until now, and then this kind of just took off here. But it took off for, for strange reasons, because by all intents and purposes, yes, it is a little bit more reduced. The synth is overall, it's not as varied, except in one way, and that's the rhythm. The rhythm, it, it approaches, in, in the background, behind her, her vocals, it's so stuttered, so stifled at times, you almost, you can't place a rhythm on this. So you, you can, but it's it really is purposely trying to evade you. It's all tuplets and hemiola, and the percussion is just, it's just driving it along. And then, at around 33 seconds, this whole thing just dips down, and this is, the, this is where you get a little bit more texture. This is where the low element reaches out. This is where the bass steps forward, just as she says, Naked, I can feel all of you. Because one thing about this track is if there was 
a a an album. It was one of those a track on this album where she just decided to bear it all. The the the, the love that was there, the sensuality that was there in this relationship. This is the track. It's called History of Touches. Again, married thirteen years. Clearly, they have a. Uh, a sensual history, whatever. I wake you up in the middle of the night to express my love for you, stroke your skin and feel you. Naked, I can feel all of you at the same moment. I wake you up in the night, feeling this is our last time together, therefore sensing all of the moments we've been together, being here at the same time, every single touch we ever touch each other, every single fuck we ever had together. It's in a wondrous time lapse. With us here, at this moment, the history of touches, every single archive compressed into a second. All with us here, as I wake up. As I wake you up. Um, it flows along with this to promote different aspects of that single slideshow she's seeing of the sensuality of their relationship. Well, I just want to address, yeah, it's a, it's a slideshow, but it's, <coughs> it's so much more than that. Because everything is over at this moment. It, it's almost like that last moment that you were together. The last moment that you were together, which, as he says, compresses every single thing because that's what you remember and that's what you hone in on. So, of course, it is becoming the deciding the deciding factor for, again, a 13-year relationship. That's, that's a long time to just compress in a single moment. So, of course, it's going to be so weighted with... with you know, emotions that are probably living with you maybe for the rest of your life. I don't know. That's a depressing take on it, but it's probably true. Uh, what I what I was fascinated by in this track is because for the most part, uh, tracks like this, which are very very on the nose, which mention a specific person and which explore like a lot of like pretty graphic sexual behavior, they can they can be hit or miss. They can be like, well, had to be there. Either that, or they bring you in 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 the way that like a I wouldn't say a hokey romance in this case. I would say probably a very. Um, a very emotionally driven romance, something that has managed to make me understand the story, the entire story, by the time we get this this love scene, which interestingly enough is painted with a, a stuttered synth background. It doesn't seem like it would match, but it does, using the same qualities that we saw in the first track, that, that sort of wet atmosphere. Okay, that's not far to go for a, a source of imagery. But still, it works. It works with this rhythm more than anything because of the way it contrasts and works against her vocals. I, I, I was in love with it. But what I think also that is really interesting about while the lyrics are very sexual and, and it should in, sense, in a sense feel warm because of the heat of passion kind of a thing, the lack of strings gives it this chilling feeling. Like it, it feels cold like you're out in the cold and that I think yeah. is foreshadowing that feeling to where this leads the fact that eventually he's gone eventually that warmth is gone and I love how the instrumentation alludes to that even though the lyrics haven't gotten there yet actually I would argue that the bass that completely follows her is that coldness in her voice showing through oh absolutely. it's a coldness of her character and that is one of the best little like oddball pieces I found in this track it stays far enough away from the rest of the synth that it becomes part of her more than part of the actual music, but still allows that that bridge to be to be made between the two. You said it contrasts. I don't really think there's any real contrast going on right here. It contrasts like in the sense that it feels like a kind of heaving, like like breath that cannot quite be controlled because it's in the heat of the moment. But I want to go back to one quick thing. I think Matt was actually uh, on point when he he mentioned before the fact that this is. Uh, like that of a 
romance that's going to obviously end. Well, sure, we know that going in, but I think that's why I understand it on a cinematic level, because when you think about all of the best love scenes, not the hokey ones, it would probably come out of a, 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 a case where a tragic element will follow. Yeah, I mean... Elements it, it, where this is not meant to last, because you're going to get something very heated and very romantic, and it's going to have some sad element to it, to imply the fact that this is just, this is a momentary thing, this is this is lust. What I really love about this track is that, even though it's on the shorter side comparatively to the first two at least, and we'll find out the rest of the album, um, it, it, it says a lot with a little, and I like that. I like that she can use a lot to say a lot, but she can also use a little to say a lot. <laughs> and I think that's actually a really interesting dichotomy. And I think also this is kind of to prep us for the next track, track four, Black Lake. Yeah, and, and once once more, it's it's in the chords to me more than anything. Yeah. Here. Or even apart from the rhythm, I should mention that, that a lot of it is the fact that she has these very, very dense, almost c- complex chords in even the fact that she reuses them a lot. It's all, A lot of it is built around uh, E-flat minor, even maybe E-flat minor ninth or something like that. It's it's it was, it was just gorgeous. And the whole time she's like climaxing on the seventh here, it's just lots of use of upper partials that I think made this track work alongside uh, the rhythm and the coldness of it. So, uh, yeah, since you mentioned Black Lake, let's move on to Black Lake, uh, which the, is probably the longest track on the it album. It is. So this is track four, and it is ten minutes long, a little more than ten minutes. Mm. Um, but what's interesting is how it starts. Considering how cold the previous track was as a whole, this one starts off with a very soft string sound that feels very cinematic. We've had cinematic moments, Steve was talking even the last track, felt like a very cinematic lovemaking scene, but here, this felt more like sweeping cinematic. And of course, soft strings will do that. I mean, we talk about it a lot. Whenever anyone features several strings together, you know, cello, violin, you know, upright bass, they 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 create a very specific sound that's familiar but, to that. But the interesting thing is it's not orchestral, and that's the thing. Yeah. When you say cinematic, already almost implies that there's well, there's going to be an orchestra there because yeah. it's just that grand. But instead, it's it's more reduced. It's this is almost like a minimalist approach. You have only two instruments at a time. In the very beginning, you have the cello and the violin, and then about 28 seconds, they give away to, I believe, the uh, a violin and a viola, or something like this. Again, there's a distinct, there's a distinct register shift, and once again, no percussion at all. It's 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 minimalist, uh, and the vocals they begin a little bit more high pitched, maybe almost a little more strained, and it's just this very slow build. Of course, it could be because well, we have 10 minutes to fill, so it's just kind of like gliding along here but this is a whole different kind of art to me than the previous track was because of the fact that in in almost two minute intervals it's separated by these prolonged pauses and then a prolonged slow section then another prolonged pause like it could have been divided up into its own tracks well one thing that remains a near constant for this track is that the violin starts being a half second echo to what she's singing and it's it's creating an emotional echo instead of a parallel that we got in the previous tracks. Yes. It's that emotional echo is in many ways the personification of her love. The love that she's saying is somewhat cold at this point, is broken at this point, but still very much a part of her. And as new ideas start getting introduced in this track, each of them becomes a representation of a specific aspect of her being. And this is something that she does expertly. In the second verse, my heart is enormous lake, black with potion, I am blind, drowning in this ocean. We get an 
underwater, underground style thumping coming in. Yeah, this is where you get the percussion for the and first time. And there you go. You now have something that's now the heartbeat of the track. It's almost like an it's almost like an industrial beat, and it's where I'd I'd kind of connect some of the background elements on this album that do have heavy percussion to I'd liken it to something that's a little bit more industrial. And actually, some of the most beautiful moments on this album, even if you do add in that percussion, really, really reminded me of the soundtrack to The Fifth Element. Um, and I actually thought, even despite the, the, the comedy in that film, which is obviously uh, heaping, still, it's a very, very emotional film to me. And I feel a lot of it was because of the music. In the third verse that we get, My soul torn apart, my spirit is broken into the fabric of all he is woven. Here we get a high poppy noise, the clearest noise on the track, the clearest sound, uh, almost a ringing out kind of a sound, another personification of, an, of her character. And then we ha- now have these three aspects, the echo violin, the thumping beat, and the high pop noise. They become the, I guess, the mixture she has for the rest of the track. The, the different aspects and yeah. the way they change shows the emotional turmoil as she starts telling this story. The instruments in this case, the music in this case, is for me the pure personification of the story she's getting across. Uh, to me though, I feel like this track is a lot more ruminative than you make it out to be. I don't know if it's a direct, the music is a direct reflection of the characters or of the love. I think it's more about the moment. And I think each layer is almost a layer of scorn that she's feeling. I, I feel like if if I was going to equate e- instrument by instrument, you know, to a level of theme, I think that is really how I would go about it. Because this is just, this is the track of a woman scorned. Our love was my womb, but our bond has broken. My shield is gone. My protection is taken. I am one wound, my pulsating body, suffering, being. I mean, it's all so present. It doesn't feel like it's invoking so much of, like, previous elements or, like, this is what we were. No, this is how I feel now. It's clear that he was a part of, you know, them. That was clear from the outset. But this is very much about the moment. This feels like some moment that you just... You know, you're getting drunk alone. That's I almost feels like this. A black lake. That's what you're staring at. That is what is in your mind at the moment. But the black I, lake is your soul, yeah, man. Yeah, all that. I mean, but <laughs> I would argue this: when you start getting past those those first elements being introduced that I just talked about, she starts talking directly to him. She starts using you. It goes from I, mine, yes, me. Yes, you fear my limitless That's emotions. when she starts actually changing the emotions in the instruments. When the the bright synth, the poppy synth starts to, to leave, she's getting very deep and dark when she's speaking to him. The percussion undergoes a couple of changes that get a little bit more heated in its style. But even so, at the same time, I almost feel like this is a rhetorical you, like the kind of thing... No, you, no, 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 is, no, no, no. This is her calling him out directly. But it's not... No, but it's not like a letter. It is a letter that you would write that you'd never send. Which is why it's all internalized ideas. Her heart, her soul, her mind. This is what she's talking But think from. about the, But think about the musical flow of this. This isn't something I feel like she'd ever... Say. I mean... For, this is you're, you're, you've said it yourself that it's that the gaps between these sections are like a long intake of breath. This is her working it out. Starting but that with, is why it's ruminative. 
Exactly. But I'm also saying it's it's her. She may be yelling at a mirror, not to him. I'm not saying she's talking directly to him. Okay. I'm saying she's That's all working saying. through the problem at him. That's all I'm by saying. The end of That's all I'm saying. Because you're yelling at the mirror, and these are the kind of lines that you get. The but, kinds of things that are so scorned. Listen to this. You fear my limitless emotions. I am bored of your apocalyptic obsessions. Did I love you too much? Devotion bent me broken, so I rebelled and destroyed the icon. Uh, that is that is taking someone down from their pedestal when at the same time everything that led up to this led you to believe that well he is on a pedestal he's definitely on a pedestal but this is the thing that you have to say this is the anger that needs to come out ironically enough the music here is actually very reserved relatively speaking yes you get some more uh, uh, heavier elements one layer by layer we build up into this like straight up techno section later on by by four minutes 40 it is really straight up techno ironically enough it's, it's really catchy come to think of it it has pep to it i i i interpreted this as a kind of um not necessarily losing what losing one's mind but it, i don't believe there's a lot of control to be had here especially so it's a, it's a, with the, the mental bender especially with this sort of trailing off nature of each compact idea yeah. but, then the, the but end, then the important thing the important thing are those in-between moments the important the moments that i feel like we're not giving their due because of the fact that when we have these moments for 30 seconds a piece almost for 30 seconds there's just a drone it's not just a breath mark and, and i feel like i've been making it out to be it is a it is a flat-out drone like she's just staring almost to no vocals no nothing just the, the drone of the existing synth work and some of the strings and she stares to, to try to bring herself back to the next paragraph, like you're writing the letter that you will never send, and your pen is paused for a moment. Damn, I while was gonna, you, I was the anger make that just, metaphor, just yeah. builds and builds. Especially, well, clearly, we've done this a couple times. <laughs> that second to last verse gets heated. Her vocals aren't heated, but the music itself is heated. You have nothing to give. Your heart is hollow. I'm drowned in sorrows. No hope in sight of ever recover. Eternal pain and horrors. You're ending it with the word horrors. Okay, yeah, she's personifying this. And that's why I really don't like the final verse of this track. Uh, I thought the the final verse of this could have been maybe shortened. Just because, you know, at ten minutes, maybe I, I got the trick. I feel like after eight minutes it started to crawl a little because we, we'd gotten the point. But moreover... Even though it did evolve from section to section, they could have stood alone, we're still painting with the same palette. There's still nothing here that we have not heard her do on this album yet. It's just how she's bringing it together that makes it really stand out from part to part and how it grows and how it evolves. And it's this structure of the track that I think got me most interested. Mm -hmm. uh, even from the very beginning, it's it's the tools that she used even just to create that, that endless drone. It, it's very similar each time. It still does... It, builds upon itself it grows in, in depth it gets more bassy but at the same time it's it the strings almost feels like it's just this light horsehair's touch just like barely committing to itself like the the bow is just it's just weightless on the strings and it doesn't really it's not there's no pressing down there's no there's no emphasis there it's just a loose it, it's a, it's an artistic style of playing i think was ex excellently chosen right here um but that final verse being very metaphorical when previously she was so concrete in her ideas and it seeming to be a little bit more i guess happy-go-lucky in a lot of ways eh. she sort of got some cheer back that she really did not have in the previous section it kind of it, it, it i view it through that kind of like a snap in her personality at this a snap in the track's mind 
where it went from angry, angry, angry to got to think about something else. I didn't feel the same shift. I merely felt that about the eight-minute mark it had, or, or nine-minute mark, the track had used itself up. It had, it had used up its tricks. But otherwise, it, the fact that it had me to eight minutes was pretty phenomenal. That said, the lines in that last paragraph, I thought, uh, the last stanza, I thought were very interesting and did kind of sum up her 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 desire with this. I am a glowing, shiny rocket returning home. As I enter the atmosphere, I burn off layer by layer. The concept of reaching that peak and then after it, it's just a free fall. That, that's, it was an excellent way to sum up this track, even if the, the music had worn on me by the last minute. So let's go to track five, Family, which is another longer track. We have about eight minutes and two seconds here. Something like that, yeah. Uh, I was quite fascinated by this track, even for most of that duration, considering the other artistic styles you chose here, and that was just... It sounds deranged. It the, did have, the drone is almost constant, first of all. Yeah, it had like an almost soundbite quality to the beginning of it. It was very kind of... This was definitely heavily synth and techno-influenced yeah. in the fact that it's it's soundbites and tones, and it almost sounds disparate and, and disjointed. More ambient well, no. in the beginning, but it's a lot of... It's that waning, that waxing and waning of the drone that had me most fascinated. Just sharpening it a little bit, flatting a little bit. I couldn't even pick out a tonal center until around a minute. Uh, and and her vocals are a little bit more accented. They're not as as laid back or or you know sleuthy whatever. <laughs> Is that a word? No, I don't believe it's a word. No, okay. But you Sleuthy. should take advice from me. <laughs> uh, it's not almost in and out like you were saying, Matt. It's it's it is out of tune. She really is going for a between phrases here, going for like a weird place in between A's and B's and C's and D's. It's it supposed just, to feel disjointed. It's. It's not. It doesn't feel that way. It is that way. Well, it I is mean, disjointed. She, yeah. At one point, it, I start to actually hear a warble effect going on on some of the the lines, some of the longer string lines and longer synth lines, where it feels like it's oscillating a little bit off key, off. That's center. what I'm describing. Yeah. The waxing and waning of it. It's a little bit sharp, a little bit flat. It almost feels like it's based around these little semitones, quarter sharps, quarter flats, that kind of thing. Uh, whether they're whether they were just sort of directed. The the, the, the the string quartet was just directed to improvise on that or whether they were written verbatim, I have no idea. Um, a lot of this feels very, very planned, so I, I, I'm not really sure. That said, I didn't really think this there were as many stark changes, I think, in this track. For at least at least for the beginning. The whole beginning of this is a lot it, so slow. The the, the buildup. Everything just slowly rises. And again, the only thing you're left to dwell on really is just those sharps and flats, like everything just being a little bit off. But that's pretty neat when you consider the fact that this is another track of uncertainty. Is there a place where I can pay respects for the death of my family? Show some respect between the three of us. There is the mother and the child, and there is the father and the child, but no man and a woman, no triangle of love. It's really dark. Oh, it's, it's dark. Also, it's an interesting turn because she decided to invoke the family in this track called family yeah um which is it's seems becoming, strange given the album well it's strange, at first at first because it, it seems like it's just a very straightforward breakup album but this makes it apparent that this album is more than that it's not just a breakup album but it's the falling apart of a family unit and also what's interesting is that as disjointed as this part is and and around three minutes of the track we get to an even more disjointed part. Well, that's where I believe the touchy violin comes in, and we get a, a deep percussion thump alongside of it. Another one of those muffled thumps, a muffled uh, 
uh, baselines. I, I want to I want to curb the, the 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 use of the word disjointed only because I thought that this this moment here especially was so just just thrilling, chilling at the same time, just the light tremolo, that this misty atmosphere. I absolutely love this stuff, just as but, tools. But it was a, a large shift in the sound of the music itself. The build led to it, but it, what a direction it goes off in becomes creepy. Yeah. Becomes really Not creepy. And then there are there are distinct it. moments, like around maybe third, three minutes, it did get a little bit stuttered. It, it brings in a lot of triplets and things. It's where the, the techno starts going off. But yeah, it, it's here where it does get pretty creepy. I I, I agree. Um, and again, the death of my family. I I had I had a few moments where I really didn't know what that meant at first. I I thought it was just kind of like she was equating a little family to this breakup. But you forget, of course, thirteen years. She had a family. She had a family with him. So the death of my family is the exact thing. It's still very much a part of the breakup album. It was even shocking for me to uh, realize at that stage that, well, it, this is it's all the same subject, obviously. Uh, no triangle of love, no, no man and a woman. It just, everything had just fallen apart here. When you lose uh, someone you love, then you lose the potential for the family. That was That is a dark sentiment, no matter where you're from. And to approach it from this way is very creative. I like the way it's it's almost now a realization. That was that first build, that realization of what's going to happen to the child in a lot of ways and the yeah. interactions of mother, father, child. Yeah, it's just mother, child, and father, child, and that's the dynamic. No triangle of love. That, that idea is gone. Instead, and instead you have a V. <laughs> now we get... A, odd, like I said, the odd touchy violin, the actual more just just single drawn out ideas instead of long sweeping notes. What it finally goes into when she goes into I raise a monument of love, there's a swarm of sound. That final verse, what she goes into becomes a single furious string line, a single just back and forth mm -hmm. with really pure ringer tones I guess is a way I could put it uh, accompanying it with her voice with with her yelling out this universe of solutions this place of solutions this location of solutions this still has that quiet that this still has that quiet little quiver that quiet little out of tune sense that mm -hmm. the previous parts that of is a constant had. throughout the track but this becomes more her emotions are bleeding into the music causing it, as opposed to the music creating a setting. When she starts yelling, the, the, the music reacts to it. And these are which lyrics? At the end, this universe of solutions, this place mm -hmm. of solutions. When she starts talking about solutions to this problem, she's fighting against the music, and the music is being cowed. I in remember, a lot of ways. and this was just a little before the end of the six to seven minutes. I it, I was entranced by this thoroughly. It was uh, sort of ex kind of honing on the on an F major seven a little bit, but still with the topmost notes just bending subtly, even a little bit maybe even a little more so than they were at the beginning, but not as disjoint. It still feel like it was more consonant at the time. It just, this, the undercurrents gets more and more, it, it, it fuels her in a way. After all, the universe of solutions, this place of solutions, this location of solutions, she's invoking the universe. Whenever you invoke the universe into something, her whole world is just shifted upside down. It, it, it really drives the po point home. In many ways, I almost didn't need the lyrics for this track. I felt like a lot of this at this point, even up to, to track five on the album was just driven by 
the music. I, I was I was in love with this. So I will say that Family is the first track on the record that felt like what my stereotypes and preconceptions expected, both musically and vocally. And and the next track as well, Not Get, which don't be confused, is actually one word, not two, not get, also fits that bill. What's interesting about Family, really quick to wrap it up, was the shifts it still makes. Even though it had that soundbite beginning and then that more frantic kind of middle, and then it opens up at the end, it's still, f the, the song pieces felt disjointed and strange, and so did the whole of the track. And I think... That's what kind of gave it its power to me. I, I don't know that I loved it per se, but I definitely found it interesting in its structure. You're talking about family or not get? Family. Family. Actually, um, family. And then not get is even more so than family was. I'll agree. Family, I mean, so excuse me, not get does does go a little bit further into uh, that avant-garde style. I, I was able to really look past it for family, and it had to do with the chords. It had to do with the voicings, because I was able to see the, the brilliance behind that and how everything was just, it was so I feel like in in some ways she's really in love with the moment and you need to pick apart moments on this the overall flow it's really hard to see the arc of this track and maybe that's the only the only problem well, with it. it's exactly hard right. it's hard even to define the arc I think uh, on this podcast and, and we've well, had a lot of experience doing this and we, we seem to be struggling now well if we're gonna start talking arc and I think I have it musically I, I don't know but emotionally the theme and the arc of this not get is crazy town for mom so this is a six minute track <laughs> sure. a little shorter than the previous but still on the long or er side um and this is a really strange intro it's just it's, like screechy tone it feels like an almost like an organ grinder yeah it just hammers out these almost chords and is playing around with i intervals. like that almost chords. almost chords because it's more of an interval thing she's he's playing around with thirds and seconds so you get a little a lot of dissonance in there almost almost becoming constant but really hugging the dissonance it it can be impulsive throughout the duration here but there is a logic um, and this is the track where the shrieks really took off, which is certainly where I'd agree it did throw me back to my preconception of what Bjork was. But then again, I'm already kind of immersed in her atmosphere, so that that's kind of all put behind me at this point. Uh, what I did not like about this track, though, and what I thought that maybe could have been curbed back a little bit, is the impulsivity of the, the, the violin. This sort of, like, accent retreat, accent retreat. Um, it got a little bit draining. I thought maybe some of the ideas here... I like the beginning idea. I like the organ grinder concept. I thought that maybe when the strings came in, there wasn't so much of a... The motif she goes back to wasn't as engaging for me. That that was my only problem. But then other things took off, like the beatbox steps in, and it's extremely dramatic. I, um... It's just hit or miss with this track. Well, what I thought was interesting about that instrumentation is as we get to the meat of the track, it feels almost more like a marching rhythm or, or you know it feel the cinematicness of it feels like almost either you're going to battle or it's like a cacophony like you could say it like a circus almost it's it's interesting it's, it's there's not a clear image for me with this it's kind of wanes from one to another depending on the pace and where we're at if black lake was the letter that never got sent this is her actually placing blame and recrimination on what's going on after our love ended, your arms don't carry me. Without love, I feel the abyss. Understand your fear of death. She's really honing in on death in this track, even more so than some of the previous tracks that she was honing in on death. Here, it gets repeated as, as a crux of each verse. 
five times. It becomes the, the, the calling out at the end. Love will keep us safe from death. She's talking directly to him. This is that moment where she's just like, okay, we got to do this. We have to save her. We have to keep her safe. I don't care what came before us. This is that argument that the kid didn't quite hear, didn't get to see, because mom and dad were trying to work through something. Yes, the love is gone. It's, I don't know where it's taking place, but this is the personal argument between the two of them, and this is her side. Um, I didn't quite see all that. I think, honestly, it, it, it is just a case of her actually going back on herself a little bit, where we had the scorn. We had the track of, of scorn uh, a couple tracks ago, and here, most of it is really just saying, I can't deny you. I can't deny what you were to me. Uh, if I regret us, I'm denying my soul to grow. Don't remove my pain. It is my chance to heal. A little more of a positive thing. It's strange that that took the avant-garde approach musically, but I, I understand the sentiment. But it's that ending. I will not forget this not get. Will you not regret having love let go? After our love ended, your spirit entered me. Now we are the guardians. We keep her safe from death. That's the point that it's, I wanted. It, it's... This song is t taking an interesting way of eventually building to uh, coming to terms with a shitty situation, essentially. The, and I think that's where the dark and ominous tones come from. It starts in this place of almost desperation because you're desperate for a resolution. You're desperate to understand. And then the end, you actually achieve it. And I think that's where the instrumentation does match. But it does seem like the lyrics do make a change. And I think it's interesting that uh, ultimately, it is coming to a place of understanding. It almost With, seems like it could be an Icelandic word, not get, but at the same time, I feel like it's probably just wordplay on it, almost like condensing the forget me not yeah. into into not get, and changing around what you actually mean by forget and just inverting it. The pauses are almost like we're missing the other half of this conversation, of this argument, or whatever it is. We're missing the the responses to her call-outs in a lot of ways. Because in between each verse, as we go along, like that tonal shift does tend to be a little bit abrupt. It does tend to really kind of hit you in the face when all of a sudden the circus is gone and, and we're in Dower Town, but then the next part, the circus is back and we're going back and forth. We're, we're getting just different elements and it's all in that same definitely angry place. But at the end of the day, the conclusion really feels like this was some sort of like hashing out of problems. Yeah, I wouldn't say for a second that this track didn't belong on the album, but if there is a palette here, this is like at, at the ass end of the palette. <laughs> Using yeah, those, is... it's like the fact that the strings are not as prevalent here or that that's not the focus. It's just this is a very different side of this album. It's the more avant-garde. This is it's the more unusual some side. some of the stuff that was less in the front earlier on the record and pushing it to the forefront and kind of dropping the other stuff. Yeah. All right, well, let's go on to track seven. Um, Adam Dance. Another fairly long track. Eight, eight minutes. Eleven seconds. Uh, <laughs> you got the minute. I got the second. That's teamwork. Uh, this is interesting. This is... um. So it starts kind of... I don't know. I said it. the song prances almost. It felt kind of plucky. Um, the strong punctuation of the, each of the, the phrases of the music gave it sort of like a factory quality. The like old school 1940s, 1950s music you'd get in a Disney factory scene. Ah. Or as it stamps... You know what I mean, though? When it when 
the can stamps down to, to, to promote the motion, and it goes to the next part of the conveyor belt. This was actually a common cartoon idea. I, but I, I, I know the visual you're trying to bring up. I the, just didn't it's have the that round. association. It's, but it's that the idea of that round, the way it rises and gets hard at the end, really does have that kind of repetitive over and over and over. The same sort of idea of being stuck in that loop, being stuck in that belt doing the same thing over and over again. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. That's where I was sense. going. That makes a lot more sense. I, I, um, yeah, I wouldn't say cartoonish, but I'd say it is more uplifting, and that's for sure. You even hear like guys in the background just saying, almost saying like, hey, at, at, at intervals. I think this this has uh, some dominant um, background male vocalists, uh, especially in part B, but that that's later. We're not there yet. Still, I think they make an appearance here just in that tiny little sound bite. But other than that, it is fairly steady, and although the chords are constantly changing, and that's where this track did kind of grab me, and that's where many of these tracks have grabbed me up until now, is that the chords seem to be the most diverse. It's actually the opposite of, of the problem I, I usually have on, on many of the albums that we do, where I'm like, oh yeah, great texture, great interpretation, I love what they're doing, they clearly have a lot of abstract ideas, I love the, the flow, the logic flow from one section to section, but yet a lot of times the chords are very weak. We're, we're in this, this field now where a lot of pop artists just think that they're coming up with something unique by hammering home that four chord progression. And yet here I feel like it's this very fluid composition where invoking a lot of changes, a lot of them very subtle. Um, strangely though, the rhythm doesn't change very much. A lot, of, a lot of other things stay very stagnant. Instead, it's just an emotional shift through the chords. Little notes here and there. Uh, apart from that, I really liked her melody. Um, it always sounded like an independent thing that could survive on its own. That's another thing I'll throw in here uh, this late in the game on the album, is it's something I have felt even throughout, that, that her melodies are something that are so strong on their own right, they, they could probably exist as solo pieces. It'd be very, very eerie, but it'd be interesting. And that would be my big argument as to why I, it kind of lost me, especially at the halfway point when we go into the B section. The thing that was holding everything together was the rhythm. And then B section comes along, and the only thing that's holding everything together is the tempo at that point. Oh, but I had felt there was it was time for a change when mm -hmm. we got part B. I, I thought this is around 4 minutes, 47 seconds, and this is the part where I met with the male vocalist step in. There's a dominant violin here, and then this, this tremolo is very techno-heavy. It actually starts to live up to its name here. It sounds like this is the Adam dance, and, and it's actually danceable. Um, and yet you still almost feel the same weight. It wasn't at the expense of the chords from the first section uh, from A. Instead, they still feel like a very integral part of this. They make me feel a lot, the chords. Uh, I almost, I only feel like the little sections here, because she's in love with one idea for so long, I feel like they could have been condensed from like the chapter level down to the paragraphical level. The male vocalist here, just to give him credit where credit's due, that's featured on this B section pretty much until the end of the track, is Anthony Hegarty, and he is the lead singer of Anthony and the Johnsons. Um, and I took a quick glance at Bjork's back catalog, and he's been featured before, so they have worked together before. Um, and uh, and yeah, it was interesting at, at that 4 minute and 47 second marker. So after the harsh kind of techno-y dance change, when the male vocalist comes in, it's definitely very different from Bjork's voice, which is, is nice to have a little bit of a change here. It was it, it made me sit up and take notice. I thought it was, it was interesting to get this change at this point. But I do want to question the the inclusion of this song a little bit for the theme that the tr the album had been going for up until this point i was just to about about to address that i think this is a pretty phenomenal answer to the to the question that i was wondering uh since the beginning 
the, since the beginning, she was asking the question on, well, we are in two separate fronts. We, we, we don't understand each other. How, can we synchronize our feelings? And here I feel like she's finally addressing that question, which is why I absolutely loved it for it. Uh, first stanza. I am fine-tuning my soul to the universal wavelength. No one is a lover alone. I propose an atom dance. Our hearts are coral reefs in low tide. Love is the ocean we crave. Relentlessly turning around and around, I am dancing towards transformation. Learning by love to open it up. Let this ugly wound breathe. We fear unconditional heart space, healed by atom dance. Out of context, this would be very. This these lyrics would be very bizarre. But in context, I think that's actually a brilliant way, almost to. I, I can't tell whether she's being cheeky or not, because after all, who can get on the same wavelength with ever? It's almost ridiculous to try, but yet we all do, because, yeah, if you have someone you love, you try to do that for them. But in Adam Dance, I mean, trying to get on another person's wavelength on a fundamental level, on the atomic level, it's, it's, it's a lot to ask for. And so when she says, I propose an Adam Dance, it almost feels cheeky to me. Like, that is her way of saying... Well, how much was I supposed to know about you <laughs> to begin with? I don't know. But I don't know. This is my question here. I don't know why it seems to be included after so much anger at the person I believe she's talking to. Well, that's an easy, easy thing to answer. You're gonna I mean, oscillate any, back and forth, yeah, moment any, to moment. Any rough breakup, especially when a family's involved, you're going to look at it from all sides, and this could be coming back towards it trying to accept the good that was there, trying to understand the person, trying to... And, and, and furthermore, I want to address what I was talking about there. It could very well be the flip side of that. Same analogy, but not being cheeky. In yeah. other words, like, yes, this is the change that she has realized, in which case it's not a negative rising shift at all. Above it is rising above yeah. and saying, I, I propose an Adam dance and next time I'll try to be more intuitive, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but some of the lines, especially towards the latter half, which may actually be the response... Of the husband, of the ex-husband. Let me rephrase that. With with lines like, No one is a lover alone. Most hearts fear their own home. It seems a lot more intimate than I'd expect them to be. But, but it may not be about him. That just could be about her speaking broadly, in which case then she's just making a factual statement. Yeah, and but, no, you're just proving my, 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 my second point. I'm really more on board with that. There's probably not as much cheekiness. Maybe I, I took upon myself to infer cheekiness. Um, it's just, it but, just seems like a weird point in the story. It feels earnest, is what I'm saying. Well, no, no. It just feels like a weird point in the story to go from all right, our love is broken. All right, we screwed up the family. All right, I'm angry at you, but we're gonna get, we're gonna, we're gonna make sure that we take care of our child. And then, and so why is it off the I wall to be... believe that this is the time for a moral? Yeah, it doesn't seem that odd to me at all. I just don't agree with that. I think it fits the flow fairly well. I think you're you're looking at it as a prolonged anger instead. Well, there has been a lot of anger already. Well, sure. We've but I'm had, saying... We've had half an hour of anger. But you can't stay angry forever, and I think this is the point where that kind of anger breaks, and it's it, there's realizations, understandings, and moving ons. Yeah, that's the, but that's what I don't see. I don't see any moving on. I do. I think, I, I, I think it, this feels like the step back. I think tonally it's a um, move forward. I think it's a move forward also because I believe the uh, not to be like too voyeuristic about this whole thing, but I believe that their divorce was in 2013, and this is a January 2015 album. So uh, there are a lot of different stages of this breakup that are being addressed here. I think one was cited as taking place about two months afterwards. I believe that was uh, Black Lake, mm -hmm. and and. Other elements may be a, a, a two-year post uh, 
post-divorce reflection. I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, from here, we move on to track eight, Mouth Mantra. This one's a little shorter than the previous, but still in the six-minute area. Um, this is We're getting something that we got earlier, but haven't seen in a while. This one starts with the strings again, which is kind of nice that, that we go back to something we'd had earlier, um, though still keeping it interesting and sounding nice. Steve had said the song's tone from the beginning felt cinematic, but more like the main theme of a villain or... It's all that bass. That's, yeah. what, that's what did it. It actually, oh, it's going to remind me of a, of a piece of classical music that, that is going to continue to elude me. Um, if anyone knows, just shout it out. If anyone knows what I'm thinking right now, do the Adam dance. Get in my head. That's what Bjork says. I really, really, really enjoy the nearly acid techno that this starts with that it goes into with her vocals. I question why it's so immediately retreated. That so, was the big issue I had with this. There was some great I didn't see ideas. it as acid techno in the slightest. I thought it was just... um. It was approaching it. Like I said, it was along the lines of almost like a villain's theme. I, I, I don't have anything to back that up except just to describe the intro as such. Uh, but if the cinematic is what I'd put it more closely at. It feels dramatic. It feels like it's coming... At, it, it should be the soundtrack to a story more directly than maybe other tracks in this album, which exist in their own right, and they're trying to make their own point. This is, is very visceral. Um, it was all in that bass, all in the cello. And yes, the, the techno, it's, it, it's there, but I don't think it's any more sporadic than at any other point in the album. The, the funny thing, though, is yes, there is a little more of a, a constant element to it. There's a constancy to this where I don't feel it's really changing up the section. It's not moving on to the very next thing um, until maybe about halfway through. Halfway through, everything ceases, and then, then, it is all techno. And it's, I don't know if acid is the word for it, but it is, it just uses that element and everything else is, is gone. For and it, it, briefly, starts, briefly. it starts strongly again. Once yeah, it, it and it almost goes itself. right back into the new thing, I, into the original thing, rather. Uh, but I didn't it know once again that. takes a step back, and I was really disappointed for that, because on top of all this, her vocals just don't seem to really be there for me in this track, because... There's a lack of connection. There's no, there's no bass that's accompanying her. That's being a bridge between the two. There's no echoing violin that's that's working with her to bring her into the really the much speedier progression of See, the percussion. See, I think you're being too specific about a very general problem here. Um, and the, the the general problem is just that yes, it it lost maybe the peaks and valleys overall of. And that's about it. I, whatever one thing you wanted out of this is neither here nor there because nothing was particularly prominent to begin with, except the bass. So <laughs> maybe the bass. Overall, I think the track can be summed up is that it's the first time that we kind of feel a little stagnant in where she's sitting. At Still least beautiful. Track. Absolutely. But stagnant in the sense of what this album had been doing and what she's been working with. It's the first time that it feels slightly reminiscent of what we've gotten and also doesn't seem to really evolve into like that next super big thing. Well, let's see where she's at theme-wise. My throat was stuffed. My mouth was sewn up. Banned from making noise. I was not heard. Remove this hindrance. My throat feels stuck. I was not allowed. I was not heard. There is vocal sadness. I was separated from what I can do, from what I'm capable of. Need to break up vicious habits. Do something I haven't done before. Um... 
pulling herself out of a rut. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds like self-reflection and the acknowledgement of a needing little, to do better. A little bit of writer's block in there, maybe. Or maybe if it's not writer's block, it was life events preventing her mm -hmm. from doing her art. Or maybe she felt she couldn't discuss about this situation uh, in as detailed as she eventually did, clearly. Um... So yeah, I, I don't. I still see we're kind of on the up and up here. We're we're attaching morals to things and we're trying to it's, put things in their right place. It's not going downhill really, but it is, is probably still on the low end. There's realization here. Yeah, for sure. That's it. Um, track nine is next, which is the final track of the record, "Quicksand." And here is an interesting start that we haven't really heard before. And that's what I kind of liked also, just to stay as we're going to the last track. There was a lot of diversity of how these tracks started. None of them felt super familiar in their early moments, which is nice to have that kind of diversity. And here's no different. We get a heavy synth percussion here that's unlike any kind of perc percussion we've gotten so far. Um, and the vocals come in not too long after that with an interesting echo effect on it. I think overall, this mix is different from what we've heard before, but as far as an outro track goes i'm kind of curious where this is going well having speed techno which even though it was subdued for speed techno for for that high energy it was pretty muffled very common theme on this album that muffle the percussion it was still so fast so very very fast having it against the the strings and vocals was sharp it was it was cutting apart the sweeps the long drawn out nature the the varied pronunciation that i really was enjoying i really really like about bjork's voice is is how she draws words out in such fascinating ways but here the percussion was hurting it it was starting to tear it apart yeah it was uh on the very last track here it's the first one i was very openly critical of as opposed to you know most of these just saying like hey like that section maybe but overall loved it now this one I was pretty critical of only because I, I it's the first time I felt there wasn't so much of a marriage there between the, the percussion and, and everything else the strings which are, are great her vocals which are great that I've learned to load by now and, and the techno is just getting in the way it's just rat -a -tat -tat -tat, all everything uh, so sharp I just feel like nothing was was left to to flow here and the track is called quicksand is this right back down the rabbit hole again is, is that the idea is it a kind of madness let's look Define her abyss, show it respect, then a celestial nest will grow above. When I'm broken, I am whole, and when I'm whole, I'm broken. Our mother's philosophy, it feels like quicksand, and if she sinks, I'm going down with her. Locate her black lake, the stream from this pit will form a cloud for her to live on. A uh, little, <laughs> at least as far as the references here, and as far as the, the imagery is concerned, it feels like she is kind of falling down again i don't know i felt as a whole of this track musically and lyrically kind of felt inconclusive it it, it well just I mean, that's why i honed in the title quicksand yeah. quicksand is not a good thing no never it's just and i mean to be fair though the fact that it feels like she might be relapsing at the end of this album is not necessarily a bad thing it's just odd to me i mean so many of these stories where we hear about heartbreak it either goes darker and deeper into despair or comes full circle and they pull themselves out. This kind of seems to have waned a little where it felt like going dark, then finding your way out, but then falling back in again, which is, 
interesting and we don't see as much. I just, I was left with this track not being quite sure how to take it. Well, actually, I think you may have just said it because in the full circle concept, that is pretty defined by that line, when I'm broken, I am whole, and when I'm whole, I'm broken. Concept that, that when you're at the bottom, then it's only at the bottom that you are going to realize what is wrong and what needs to be fixed. But yet, when you're at the top, when you feel like you're, you're whole, that's when you're going to let things slip by you because you feel as if that's just... You're, you're just coasting. Everything's fine, and things are breaking down all around you, and once again, you're back at the bottom. You're broken. And it's just around and around and around we go, and that's the quicksand of life. I, I It's what I see from it, at least. The strings of vocals support it, but I just don't understand yeah, why the rest of it... I just don't understand the music. I, the, yeah. the, tech, yeah. the, the, the techno day, felt pointless here. It just felt like a presence, a presence that I didn't really want. That A um, pervasive presence, if you will. Yeah, and it wasn't even like an acid techno thing. I don't, I don't, I don't really. It was just there. It was just there, and that was my issue with it. The last, the last pointed thing that I think she decides to to tack onto this album is the, um, is the last stanza here. We are the siblings of the sun. Let's step into this beam. Every time you give up, you take away our future, and my continuality, and my daughters, and her daughters, and her daughters. I love those lines. It is a great beautiful line I wanted to feel it so much more I think I have continuity instead of continuality same crap the issue is uh, yeah the the family's broken the family is not going to continue it's, it's something she said earlier on and now it's, it's 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 really harsh because the funny thing I believe her last name is is uh Goodman's daughter right and daughter I believe is daughter uh, when you take from the Norse and it, I, I find it just a little funny that, of course, she's the daughter of someone. We're all, well, okay, the only half of us are the daughters of someone, but nevertheless, it's, it's, it's kind of ruined that exact continuity, the continuity of her very name itself, because by this breakup and through this divorce, there will not be another daughter or a daughter of daughter, daughter's daughter. I, that's maybe serendipity, the fact that works out so well, but... Um, uh, it's a harsh sentiment for a breakup. Normally people don't think about posterity, and she is. Well, and the message here can also come across as horribly bleak because, you know, this idea that, well, if someone has a broken home, then they'll have a broken home, we'll have a broken home, we'll have a broken home. Right. This idea that someone who's she's... raised in a divorce relationship then will go on to have a broken home for their kids who will have a broken home yeah. for their kids. And that's not necessarily true, the only but thing it I sounds don't like know... the mindset is going down that path. The only thing I don't know is if her two children are, are, are with him or not. I don't, I don't know that, but it, it sounds like they are, and I don't know how old they are. You know, I know that she was very young when, when her parents were divorced. Uh, so that's depressing. That's yeah. really depressing as we enter our wrap-up. What do you think about this album? I mean, uh, to start, I think I can safely say that I, and it's hard not to, but I'm going to try my damnedest to not fall into preconceptions. I think that I, there are only a few Bjork, song, Bjork songs that I know and I like um, from various soundtracks and other things, um, but I've never really listened to her on an album level. Whereas here, I'm getting a brighter and bigger picture of her. Um, and I have to say, musically and lyrically, for the most part, I really enjoyed a lot of moments. I think that it's hard to digest whole songs here. And um, whereas with Flying Lotus, we complained about either things being too short or piecemeal or the album being too long or whatever our complaints were, because there were a few of them. Um, here, I feel like some of the tracks, even though they don't feel their length in the moment, I still feel are 
too long because I kind of just get lost in where I am in the album. Listening to it multiple times, I often found myself going, wait, what track is this again? And it's not because there was inconsistencies or because there was a problem. It was more just because the way it flowed, I felt like I was getting a little confused. Um, I think that my favorite track on the whole record is probably History of Touches because there's just so much emotion and so much palpable stuff in that track. And it's one of the shorter tracks. Ironically being one of the more minimalist of all. Yeah, but I just, I got more out of it. Um, not saying I didn't get anything out of the other tracks. I think here, track three is where I can go, I got something out of the entire track. Whereas every other track on the album, it's like, I got stuff out of it here and there and this moment and that moment and this shift. Um, I mean, undeniably, she's a way more talented vocalist than I ever in my brain space gave her credit for. Um, you know, I always, like I said, imagined her as like a caricature, very similar to uh, Yoko Ono in this like warbly kind of crazy avant-garde person. I hate to say it, but when I was explaining to my father who Bjork was, I said Yoko Ono, Ugh. but better. <laughs> That's exactly how I put it. It's Just so, a they're so not idea. even comparable. And they're not. I know, but it's all. like I wanted to get across the idea of it's a very unique experience. You guys saw, gotta see some uh, some videos of Young Bjork. You're gonna, your whole world is gonna be turned upside down. <laughs> but my point here is that I, I learned a lot about the artist here, and I'm actually intrigued to go back and listen to her work. I don't know that I'd ever be a huge fan of Bjork. I think there's definitely talent here, and I like things here, but it's one of those albums where I, I recognize the talent and the expertise, but don't go out of my way to listen to to this album again. I'd like to hear earlier stuff because I think there I could definitely find specific songs that I like, just like there are specific songs here that I like. Um, wrapping it up though, I mean, she's definitely a really good artist. Um, there are really great moments, but this isn't a great album. It's a really good album that I enjoy. Um, it's a 4.3 for me. Because ultimately, I can't ignore, cannot ignore the talent that's here and the skill that was crafted in this record. I don't think I'll really go back to it, but I guarantee I'm going to have to refresh myself at the end of 2016 on this record. Because there are definitely highlights, at least in moments, transitions, and in, in talent alone. I will... I think I've said this before. This may be my favorite album I'll never listen to again. <laughs> um... It's it's not that it's not my cup of tea. It's that it is art. And honestly, if I listen to it again, I'm not going to enjoy it the same way. It's going to change in my mind. And I don't really want that to happen too much. When we go to the end of the year, like Matt said, I probably will enjoy it for completely different reasons. But there's a lot of problems here. And the problems are mostly because I see it too much as the art-oriented music as opposed to the enjoyable-oriented music. To, to put that in context, this isn't catchy. This isn't in any way going to be a pop hit single. It's, it's a masterpiece of painting a terrible, terrible moment of her life. And for that, it's, it's wonderful. But unlike some of the other uh, albums that we've thoroughly loved, like My Brightest Diamond... St. Vincent, all these uh, really like out there, kind of poppy oriented, really artistic pieces. Here, 
the story is completely linked to the music itself. I can go to my brightest diamond and enjoy a single song, and I can enjoy that single song in a variety of ways, but I can always get that first feeling out of it. Here, it's almost indomitable to try to take this on with a track-by-track track idea or taking out singles or something like that. You can't do it. It's just, it's too much trying to get apart the individuals. Yes, History Touches is probably one of the most pointed points on the album, but it was only three minutes. And I think having it that concise and saying, yes, History of Touches is the your favorite track, I, I would argue that that's belittling some of the other, in my opinion, more invested songs like Black Lake, like Family... Even Adam Dance, which I didn't particularly like. But my favorite track isn't the best track. Not the same thing. So it doesn't oh, okay, belittle anything. Okay, I, wanna, I, wanna, I, I wanted that distinction to be made. Okay, then. it's not the year in review. Cool it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I need, a year to, for that. I need to see that. Like, Adam Dance, I didn't particularly enjoy in the long and the short of it. But I found to be it to have just beautiful and confusing and iffy and bad parts all meshed together. And I, I enjoy it for that, for it to be both terrible and awesome at the same time. That said, this really is a an, an amazing piece of art, and for for that alone, this is this is definitely higher than mad. This is this is a solid four six. I have a lot of issue, but I I enjoy that the issues are because of just me arguing with my own taste in many ways. Who um, I almost feel like uh, we undersold this, or rather I undersold this from a from an analytical perspective, specifically a chordal analytic, analytical perspective because I, I, I gushed about how much I like a lot of the chords on this and I, I, I didn't do as much um, chord analyzing as I probably should have, but you know, ambitions of 2016, that's in our in our future and I, I, I didn't expect to be as blown away by this as I as I was, even though I, I, I had high hopes for it and I knew it would be an interesting podcast. This was a deeply complex album, um, musically, and it did a lot of things that I thought were very fresh. And it's interesting, John, that you mentioned My Brightest Diamond, because that was very much in my mind uh, in some of these tracks, especially when she's going deep into that concept of, of trying to connect with another human being. There were several tracks off of My Brightest Diamond's uh, This Is My Hand, which is just by definition is showing all of her cards and bearing herself to the world. And it was called one of her most ex exposed albums at the time. And now suddenly this is. And uh, they're both... I find it interesting that they're both women that I get women that are getting up there in their years and have had so many albums now that have concerned the subjects of love in in some form, and yet I I think they're I think they're growing more poignant with time, and I find that to be one of the most fascinating things. Uh, maybe that's it. Maybe that's not. Again, I don't know the entire discography of of Bjork. I detect that there probably are changes here. And I also don't know how much is Bjork and how much is uh, her, her, her crew, her backup here. The liner notes are heaping with talented musicians, and I don't know how many liberties they took. I don't know how much was, was composed by Bjork. The important thing is the end product. And the end product here, I think, is pretty incredible. And it is an upper echelon piece for me. I think that moment by moment, she's doing something really, really different. She's created a sound that even though it's subtly different from the norm, it is different, and I noticed it within the first few seconds, and it is consistent. There's really not a lot of deviation on this album, except, except some of those techno elements where it goes a little bit off the wall, uh, but that's toward the later portion. This, to me, is a 4.5. It's not quite a 4.6, but it is an upper echelon piece 
Um, it's it's made the mark for me. The only reason I'm not going quite further than that is because of uh, the end and because of how yeah, it, it the kind exhaustion of exhaustion you get by yeah. the end. Or not it's not. Just... I, I don't feel exhausted necessarily. I just feel like some of the uh, the way the music matched with the moral was not quite as as on point as it had been for the bulk of this album up to that point, and where every single track was not only exploring a new facet of this horrible horrible breakup but also a, a new facet of how to structure a song. That, to me, is, 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 is brilliant. I don't do this too often, but honestly, the way you guys have kind of picked apart at this record and talked about it, it would be unfair for me to bring it below a 4.5. And the reason I'm bumping it up to a 4.5 is for all the reasons you guys mentioned. Even though it doesn't fit my personal tastes, there's a lot of talent and a lot of pursuit for what's next. I couldn't honestly rate last year's stereotypes for pushing the limits and ignore that future looking here. So it is upper echelon, it is 4.5, but for Steve's exact reasons, I can't push it beyond that because of how it kind of unravels at the end and also can become overwhelming or exhausting. Whereas stereotypes, I was just on board from beginning to end. Yeah, and, and exhausting again. What is not, Was that my word, Joyce? It's that's my word. Yeah. It's yeah. mine and John's word. Gotcha. That's how we Joyce. feel. Gotcha. And I will be going back to this album, um, even on, on song level, on, on moment level, because there are moments on this album that give me some of the same chills that I got off of This Is My Hand by My Burst Diamond. So 4.5, 4.5, and 4.6. Um, what a way to start the new year. Yes, with chills. This <laughs> with might chills. actually be our strongest start, if I'm not mistaken. I Could be. We... I know we yes, weren't so yes, happy with uh, with uh, New by Paul McCartney. That I remember specifically. No. I know we were well, Mogwai very... was just a mistake <laughs> yeah. on all levels. Uh, but Aphex Twin was... was... Aphex Twin was we interesting. We were all fairly enjoyable. positive. Yeah. We were all positive. It, we existed in at least four, but maybe not upper echelon. Um, before we wrap up this this episode, I do want our topic to be something that... I had been thinking about since last year, but couldn't really articulate until we were chatting today. Um, and is kind of a non sequitur, but stick with us. It should be good. So we were talking earlier offline about how um, Steve brought up a story about how Howard Stern was kind of belittling podcasters because he feels the only way to come up in the medium is to actually work for a radio station and put in your 10,000 hours. I'm he, not even sure how recent of a story this is. It could right. be anywhere up to two years old, but but it's a relevant conversation to continue having, especially if now in 2015, you know, anyone's still kind of leery about podcasters. There have been successful podcasts now for several years on end. Yeah, and so, you know, it got me thinking about artists and celebrities in general, but we're going to focus on artists mostly, who, because they kind of have a moment of being out of touch or they don't push their, themselves to get educated in the fields they're in, in all of the areas it might touch, they can kind of put off their fans or separate themselves and, and sound out of touch. You know, for Howard Stern to just blatantly pan podcasting is ignorant. Flatly, the clip was was really uh, it, it was enraging to listen to because it was just a flat out dismissiveness with almost no no facts behind them. Um, and of course, you know, I and that's there, the kind there, of thing I'm talking has, about. Well, it's also the kind of thing that Howard Stern does, and we True. should we should we should leave that that room for um for a debate. And the fact that, of course, being such an inflammatory guy as he's been, perhaps he was just kind of stoking the fires of what is going to be a much discussed topic. His ratings are are not exactly what they used to be. Um, but still, there was there was a lot of 
discussion around where you could even tell all his, his crew, they weren't necessarily supporting him, they weren't agreeing with him in the process. And uh, it has been addressed by a lot of other podcasts who want to discuss this, not just because of self-preservation or self-defense. Most podcasters would leap like maybe you might infer that we're doing right now to defend the, the thing that we're doing. Um, which, regardless of how much money it makes you, if nothing, is still, I think, very much worth the effort. You hone your chops, and, and in many ways, it's a very grassroots kind of thing. You just start delving into something, and you're your own boss, but yet you listen to your your your, your viewership. It's, it's not the same as radio broadcasting, and I don't believe they're comparable in any way. It's a very different kind of medium. Um, and it requires a different kind of patience. You you don't need to be interrupted by advertisements. It's a lot more fluid, uh, and it has its own business model. So that's just one example. But it def- definitely you find this from a lot of from a lot of uh, artists or people in the media business who are getting up there in years, and they're just not understanding the the new thing and the way that the market may have changed since they were doing it. Because I will agree that for Howard Stern, he grew up in a very competitive environment. Um, where to be the best radio broadcaster, you had to have such an original shtick, and your your uh, producer had to believe you. It, it had to believe in the project at hand. Uh, otherwise, there were so many other people ready to take your place, and podcasting is a lot more open. And that's a tough thing to reconcile if the game has just completely changed over the course of your lifetime. Well, one of my least favorite YouTubers, uh, Angry Joe, I don't know. Matt might have seen him, but I know Steve hasn't. It's he's a guy who just gets on and rages about video games, and he rages over the stupidest things. He's basically being the anti-promotional person. I know he's got a lot of fans for it, but it's one of the most turn-off ways of getting viewership, and one of the most turn-off ways of getting endorsing. He's already in a media that lives and dies by commercials and viewers. Mm-hmm. It's all about it. It's YouTube. That's the only way you can make money is by getting bumps. It's by doing that sort of stuff. It's the only way you make money in so many other forms of media, but it's the most emergent of markets. But when you have individuals like PewDiePie, when you have Markiplier that have he hit 10 million, didn't he, recently? I think so. Yeah, pretty awesome. I love him. Who are always about the the hope and inclusion and friendship and then to see guys that are Focusing on selling rage, it upsets me that that is how they go about trying to build these markets, trying to create uh, an awareness in the wider media. Because for now, when you start talking about individuals, like the only people who are hearing Howard Stern are people who already listen to Howard Stern. He's probably just looking for an inflammatory remark so that he can get a little bit of a bump in viewership. Well, the since same he mentioned rage, since he mentioned rage, though, I do think that is a huge portion of it, and I think maybe that is a little bit of the game, is because so many people now make the, a, a living really off of this, like being a troll. In, in, not even just trolls, though, but people, even people who have like. If you, Having a cause is great, but especially if it's done maybe at the expense of another person or another person who's just trying to do make their living in the way that they feel is right, it can really come across as this kind of like manufactured outrage, the the, the professional outrage people, people who get up there and they're just really, really good at, 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 at yelling at other people for living the lives they want to or having an opinion, God forbid, in America. Like, it's, it's, it's really 
it's really tiring at the end of the day. And maybe you could you could be sitting at home and saying, well, what are you doing right now? You're just picking a point of, of discussion. I'm trying to break down the idea that maybe some things just don't need to be discussed. Some things some things you can just leave to your to your own. But it's not even about that as much as it's also about or it is about that, but it's also as well about the idea of don't ignore the f- progress in your face. You know, you don't say something that's completely inflammatory and untrue without at least having some facts behind you or a exactly. purpose. Like, I mean, and this is, he's not a musician, but he's someone that I used to listen to a lot. Christopher Titus has a podcast, and I grew up listening to his comedy specials, and I'm a big fan of his. But very recently on his podcast, I say recently, I haven't listened in over a year, but when I last listened, he was attacking gamers and calling them all basement-dwelling nerds who live with their parents and, you know, just attacking these people who... You know, it, it he he was equating gamers to gun nuts and to all of this other stuff, and it's it, it was just from a place of ignorance, and it was a bummer because he's not an idiot. You could, on the same count, be well. These are people that are sitting at home enjoying the art that they like. Yeah. So you could say the same thing about someone who listens to albums back to back, and or or who binge watches movies and TV shows. It's the same thing. Yeah. So what? Or, you're supposed to stop everything that you love, you know? You know, just it's, because it might not have content that other people should see. It. Exactly. I mean, it, it it comes down to a lot of things, and it's it's, it's even, even something as like having box seats uh, for the Yankees or something like that, a season's pass, something like that. It's something that they want to dive into, and in many ways, sports can be argued that there are, but we're not going to get into that one tonight. You. Ignorance is not a good starting point. It never is a good starting point because opinions drawn from ignorance are never going to be good long-term arguments. They always are going to be disproved. But because of the fact that they're drawn from the ignorance, it's hard to change that person's opinion. They, they can't be re-educated at that point. They already have made up their mind. Well, I That's mean, the old joke about, like, the old racist grandmother who's well, like, well, uh, oh, what are you going to do with her? You know, she's going to say what she's going to say. And yes. I mean, that's a truly a bummer. I mean, this idea that, and it's true, a lot of people who are racist, sexist, you know, homophobic, there's nothing you can really say to them that's going to change it because if they were if they were able to be reasoned with, they wouldn't be at those extremes to begin with. And that's what's truly unfortunate sometimes. And... Um, well, the irony, for instance, is that really, even despite the outrage there, you almost see exactly where Howard Stern is coming from, like sure. I said, because of his history and how he, he came to power. And it's like, in the, that competitive world, it, yeah, I'm sure if you were having this discussion in, in like 1989 and there was just a couple dudes who like set up their own little antenna who were trying to, like, it would seem so trite by comparison to like, oh, come on, just just get a job in broadcasting because that's all that existed, you right. know? But in a different market, there are different rules apply. And when someone is getting up there doing the same thing that you're doing, essentially, and doing it for free, for free, because he's on serious X. People have to pay for what he gets, uh, for what he does. And it's like if a broadcasting company sees the same thing going on for free, who do you think they're going to hire? The people who have a constant paycheck coming or the people who this is their passion and they'll do it for nothing? Yeah. Which is kind of cool now that, oh, it's cool that it's also kind of dangerous. There's a double-edged sword that's now coming into being. The you... only risk is not having a cross-check. No, that's no, the no. only difference. YouTube Red is the new big thing that they're pushing, which is a paid subscription for no advertisements 
and exclusive content from uh, specific creators. Like people, like the big names, the guys that have million plus followers are going to be creating videos and things like that that are exclusive to YouTube Red. Yeah. It's going to be only there, or maybe it comes out a few weeks beforehand. Uh, what what's going to happen is we're going to start seeing another divide. This might be the next natural evolution of of Hulu of television in general. Well, Hulu you know offers the, a paid model where you pay more for no ads. Also, you know, there's another name for this, and that's called post capitalism. It's a it's a interesting article that I read a while back about the idea that well, just by virtue of of having an internet and have having content there that will be gotten for free if whether you have a say about it or not um you try to you know yeah infuse your advertisements here and there but people know that the, you're never going to be able to put a blocks on it like like there used to be blocks on this kind of thing otherwise otherwise the torrent culture will will persist and always will um essentially what you have is is a model where yeah yeah people are still going to make money based on content but it'll be very indirect and it'll be a kind of thing where you're going to need to diversify because otherwise you will have a kind of free for all system which is 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 not capitalist at all it's just like oh it's for everybody but it, so it'll be it's why it's called post capitalism because it's a kind of weird mix that only the internet can 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 build which is why youtube red is a huge step the people who make these videos, or even just the the people in general producing videos, YouTube Red subscribers, the people that actually go in, well, a share will be based on view count. Mm -hmm. So if producer X creates a video that garners half the views of everybody who has been watching YouTube Red, they get half the money, half the profit to them. Yeah. It's actually divvying it. It's it's. The most communist of the systems they've come up with yet. Whoever <laughs> well, gets watched the most makes the most money. It's not quite that, but but I did also read the other answer, and this applies to music too. I was reading a, a, a blog called Musical Assumptions, run by uh, a composer and violinist Elaine Fine, who was making an answer to this uh, article on post-capitalism and wondering how it applies to music, especially as a composer, uh, which is something a lot of people are thinking of, and that we have talked to death. And how does a, a, a musician make money in a world of of you know, regular streaming, and that's just going to be the future. Obviously, try to go more for um, uh, more for concert funds and whatnot. That doesn't work quite the same way for like the private session musician. Whereas, like, I offer my services to the masses, and session musicians are having the worst trouble right now, is because it, it's just not required on the same level as maybe it used to be, and yet it still is a deeply respected art form. How the hell are you going to make money with it? You kind of have to invent your own your own rule of conduct, which is that, well, I will do certain things for free if, if I'm asked to do it, as I expect to be paid, but I will also put myself out there to many other uh, people who support my work for free. You have to invent your own rule code of conduct as you go. It's strange. Well, I think... That's post-capitalism. The important point to make here, and to briefly touch on what John said, I mean, I wouldn't be doing my due diligence as someone who works for Mozilla um, if I didn't bring up ad tracking and ad blocking. The future of extra paid Hulu where you have no ads and YouTube Red where you have no ads is it hurts the advertisers. And if the advertisers can't make money, they can't necessarily make the products they want to make. And then you can't get the products that you want. And that's a big problem too, and it's finding that balance. I don't want to get too far into that rabbit hole, though, because it's a whole other story that has nothing to do with music. It also strikes me as the kind of thing that they're going to have to change the courses on this thing, like, every six months. Yeah. Like, you learn something, but it's like, well, that's how marketing works. Six months later, 
No, it's not. <laughs> and that, well, that's the thing is that internet marketing is they're trying to so run it dynamic. Like t- yeah. Well, they're trying to run it like TV marketing, and you can't. They're not the same. But but advertisers haven't learned that yeah. anyway. Um, going back to what Steve was touching on about you know this this where this conversation started in the core of ignorance and, and not educating yourself on what's new is. Steve's like, oh, well, what are you trying to do about it? You know, speaking from the listener's perspective or the fan's perspective. Well, I personally try and educate myself every day. And actually, a lot of where I find internet culture education, at least, is through um, uh, the Idea Channel, which is hosted by Mike Regnetta. And um, it's got this way of taking things from the internet and things from modern art and things from our past and kind of mashing everything together and kind of showing similarities and through lines. He tries to just reconcile it and see how it's going to function in, in, let's say, the next six months because that's about as as far as we can see ahead and as far as we can predict. But as long as you keep making people aware of it, you will at least try to keep people on their toes. And going through that that backlog of videos, you find out some really interesting things and some interesting perspectives. He's actually very awesome. I would check uh, Idea Channel out and Vsauce as well, which we've referenced on the podcast before. Both of them do very interesting things in internet education. The key thing is just don't be dismissive of anything. Even like I said in this very same conversation, I'm not really being too critical of Howard Stern. I'm merely saying that that was a bit of an off-the-cuff comment, but I I can pull back and say I see where he's coming from because it is still a good message. I wouldn't say it like Howard Stern would say it, but it is a good message for any podcaster out there to say hone, hone your stuff. The fact that you are your own boss does not make it this, this, this free-for-all and doesn't guarantee you success in, in, in any way, shape, or form. Stay informed, and that's how you'll get better. Um, so, before we get into our wrap-up wrap-up, because we've wrapped up and then wrapped up with a topic, so we'll wrap up again, um, I just want to quick give a quick plug to this week's Crash Chords Autographs. This week I interview uh, Storyville, who's been on tour with Megaran, and he was on the album Soul Veggies, which I talked about in the Mega Rand podcast. Um, he's a rapper, producer, sound engineer. He's got his own engineering blog. Um, so please go check that out. He's a good dude. We had a nice chat. Um, before we sign off for the week, Steve, will you read us our spam and then tell us what we're doing next week? Yes, spam. What's up? It's a fastidious piece of writing on the topic of media print. We all be aware of media is a wonderful source of facts. And that's from the lovely Jennifer Jason Lee Nude. Wow. Yeah. And and thanks for commenting on our post, No Podcast This Week, Part 2. That was was a very interesting media piece. I put a lot of work into that. Obviously. Yeah. I'm sure there was a pun in there somewhere. That's right. Um, By the way, if you can listen to all of our 176 episodes and find where we've repeated ourselves on a spam, please let us know. Until then, too bad. Um, I don't know that we've repeated ourselves, but it's fun to put that mission out there. And uh, that brings us to what we're doing next week. Next week, we are doing a listener pick. First yeah. listener pick of 2016. I guess, I guess if every single episode you say it's the first thing of 2016, we're going to get a little redundant. Yeah. But this is neat. And we've had this on, on, the, uh, on the block for about two months now. This yeah. is from Doug Ferguson of Music A to Z. Uh, music A to Z is a music podcast based in Vancouver, which we... Uh, I don't like to say reviewed, but we we covered them. We discussed them at length on our 150th episode special back in the summer, which uh, covered music podcasts in general. And they were one of the seven or, or eight podcasts that we chose to 
to analyze over the course of it. And uh, since then, we've had a nice little back and forth social media thing. And uh, I would like at some point to, to pitch a, a band to their podcast. And they decided to reach out with us. Actually, Steve Ferguson did initially. And we had to decline that one because it was an old album from 1983. Well, Doug Ferguson picked us uh, a nice new album. And it is called Vega International Night School by Neon Indian. So I don't know if they've discussed them before on their podcast as a um, as a, as a subject. Maybe they've said them offhand. I, I think uh, Doug Ferguson posts something something about uh, Neon Indian, but uh, we'll be looking at that album, and we hope they not necessarily agree or disagree, but just listen. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> that's about all that anybody can can expect. Uh, that they listen. Yeah, that's kind of what we're in the business for. Yeah. It is a listener pick, after all. <laughs> that is <laughs> they true. They did listen to so what we do. Tune, us, tune in next week, listen up, and remember, music is life. And, and life, life is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.